Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Gigi Hawkins. When I was first starting out, the best advice I ever got was get your reps in. And it took me a while to actually embrace that advice. See, when I started out as a filmmaker, I was so precious about my short films. I raised money. I poured so much energy and effort into making these. I shot with all the fancy gear, anything I could get my hands on. I got pretty lucky with my first short, but after that, well, I was going through the motions of directing, but I really didn't understand how to direct. And I think I was getting too caught up in the minutia of the fancy, shiny things. Instead of getting my reps in, I was focusing on a few bigger projects. It wasn't until after I made a short that didn't really land that I finally gave myself permission to lower the stakes. In fact, I completely disregarded the idea of making short films, quote unquote, and instead I turned to making sketches, aka getting my reps in. See, sketches, there's an art to it, of course, and we'll dig into that today with our interview. But for me, simply reframing my approach and allowing myself to move away from my perfectionist short film mindset and to move into a learning by doing let's try things, let's take big swings and have fun and build community mindset really changed everything. And it was through sketches that I actually became a filmmaker. Which brings me to this week's interview where the theme of getting your reps in is so apparent. I speak with director, cinematographer, producer, executive producer, Alex Buono. Alex is known for his work on Russian Doll, documentary now, and most recently, the Peacock series based on a true story, which is a dark comedy about true crime podcasts starring Katie Kuko and Chris Messina. He's been nominated for Oscars and Emmys for his work, but what I loved most about our conversation is the insight Alex provides into working as a director, producer, in TV. And it all started as his first DP job, which happened to be on SNL. He had worked in the camera department for many years before that, but When he got to SNL, he was a director of photography, and that's where he got his reps in, which you'll learn about in just a moment. In addition to talking about the importance of getting your reps in early in your career, Alex also unpacks how he leads as a filmmaker, sometimes in the driver's seat and sometimes leading by supporting. And now, my conversation with Alex. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, thank you, Alex, for joining us on No Film School. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan. Happy to hear that. Now, did you did you go to film school yourself or did you? I did. You did? Where, where, where'd you go? I, did, yeah. I went to USC film school back in the 90s. But yeah, I, I had a great time. I had a great experience in film school. Yeah, as people say, it's it's more than anything, it's a place to meet your contemporaries. And that's kind of what it was for me as well. Our, one of our co-hosts, also USC grad, he ironically was my film school professor before I dropped out. So we're very, we're neutral. We say no film school, but we're pro. We're whatever works for you. So I guess, how did you, how did you get your start in, in storytelling for the screen? I, well, I went to film school. And then when I graduated from film school, I actually started my career as a cinematographer. And so I got out of film school and I was shooting people's short films and weird hip hop videos in the 90s and I started shooting some independent features and then pretty quickly I worked on a movie that the producer of it also produced for Saturday Night Live and it was over the summer hiatus and she you know we got along really well and she asked me to hey you should come to SNL and try shooting the film unit and so I was sort of kind of pretty close out of film school and suddenly in New York, DPing the film unit of SNL. And that became just this incredible learning place for me. I was there for a long time. I spent off and on about 17 seasons at SNL. It was a place that I could come and work on a goofy short film or a weird commercial parody. And then I could leave and go and produce a documentary. And then I could come back and do some more shorts. And I just did that off and on for, for, again, for, you know, 17 seasons. And it just became this incredible place for me to, you know, experiment with genre, experiment with tone. Every week was a new challenge. Every week was a, like, you get a script on a Thursday, you shoot it on a Friday, it goes to the air on a Saturday. And there was no time to worry about it. There was no time to overthink things. You just had to go and do it. And every week was something different. And so it forced you to develop this kind of visual and tonal dexterity where you could just very, you had to be this kind of detective and be able to look at a reference and go, oh, I see what they're doing. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, we can do that. And really understand very quickly, like how to create tone and how to create style and how to not be intimidated by that. And so that experience, you know, which was a really fun experience for a long time, but also really informed all of the work that I'm doing now. So I left SNL to make another show with a bunch of my SNL friends called Documentary Now, which is a show that where we, you know, it's a half hour comedy show, but we create a comedy world within the real world of famous Mm -hmm. documentaries. And that's a show where every episode is very different. It's an anthology series. And so it's another extension of that experiment in almost filmic style, you know, because every episode is like, well, this one's going to be a, 1970s cinema verite thing. And then this one's going to be a contemporary Netflix thing. And 
it all kind of was feeding into this, like, I guess, comfort with genre and style and tone. And, and that's kind of, I guess SNL is sort of where it began for me, but not like so many of my writing and performing contemporaries who got their start at SNL and, and they, they look at it as this place of incredible improv. Mm -hmm. For me, it wasn't that at all. For me, it was this place of, you know, experimental filmmaking, yeah. I guess. It, it's interesting how rigor, that rigor and rigorous schedule of SNL had you put in a position where you had to figure out establishing the tone, for example, or the genre of a specific short, which, you know, it sounds like you were laying the groundwork for what became digital shorts, The Lonely Island. And now to this day, like that is so much of SNL lives online and in short form. So it's it's so cool to learn about the history there. I'd love to hear specifically when it came to documentary now, when you were talking about establishing tone early on, what were those conversations like, especially in an anthology series? Well, I had been at SNL for a long time working with the director and producer of the film unit there after, at the time was Reese Thomas, who was, he and I had just been working together for 10 years and, and along with obviously Seth Meyers and Bill Hader and Fred Armisen, who we'd all worked together for a long time, John Mulaney, we'd worked together for a long time. And we had made a short film at SNL called The History of Punk, which was kind of like the first episode of Documentary Now. And it was a, a documentary about a, a 80s punk band, kind of like the Sex Pistols. Fred Armisen and Bill Hader played this band. Seth Meyers wrote the episode, wrote the sketch. And it kind of was the precursor to Doc Now, and it kind of helped us come up with the idea to create this show based on sort of a fake documentary show. And it took about a year to figure out what is this show? Is it like, are we trying to make like one documentary? Are we trying to, and it kind of evolved into like, how about, what if every episode is its own thing? Everybody in that group, we're all a bunch of, you know, documentary nerds and film nerds. Bill Hader's the biggest film nerd you'll ever mm -hmm. meet in your life. And they just, those guys just know documentaries like back of their hand. And so you would, there would be like, we want to do an Errol Morris one, but we want to do a Maisel's Brothers one, but we want to, you know, like, so it was all of these ideas came to the writing table. And then, you know, Bill Hader wrote this episode and Seth Meyers wrote this episode and Fred Armisen worked on this. And so each episode of Documentary Now had this unique voice of these different writers and their different comedy writing styles. And then each one needed this like very specific style kind of defined by what the underlying reference documentary would be. And it came down to Reese and I who co-directed the show together to figure out how do we create that style, you know? And in, you know, quite honestly, like in a television format, and we were at IFC in a, in a low-budget television mm -hmm. format. And luckily, we had just worked together for 10 years at SNL, and that wasn't as intimidating as, as maybe it sounds. It, it became something like, oh, we had to do this. We, we do this every yeah. week. In three days. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Having three or four days of production felt like this incredible luxury, mm -hmm. you know? We would have maybe six hours to do a, a You're like, we have too much time now. This is... Too much time. Yeah, I know. It's, it's such a perfect segue into Based on a True Story because Based on a True Story is a, an, a series. So now you're telling a long-form series over the course of many episodes, but we're still telling a story that is 
in conversation with the format that it is about. So this is a show that is about true crime podcasts, which is, I, I think, a a feat in itself to be able to be commenting and telling a story at the same time. So I'd love to hear how you became attached to the project and or the series, which is now out, and and how you started to think about, especially since you directed the pilot episode, which would be setting the tone for the entire the entire series, how you approached telling this particular story. Well, I was the, so the, the, the beginning of the story is I was the directing producer of the second season of Russian Doll. And after that came out, Roxy Rodriguez, who is an executive at Jason Bateman's company, Aggregate, we set up a meeting and she said, I've got this project in the pipeline called Based on a True Story. We're not ready to do it yet. Give us like six months, but you should direct the pilot. She was very like, just very focused in our meeting. And it was really impressive. And you take a lot of these general meetings and they never amount to anything. And like, to Roxy's credit, you know, six months later, she called me up and said, okay, we're ready to make this thing. You should direct the pilot. And hired me to direct it. It was amazing. And I met with obviously the showrunner before I got the job, Craig Rosenberg, who created the show. And it was his brainchild. And, you know, immediately the conversation was, you know, wow, this is such a smart script. I'd read the pilot script. It's such a, just a smart, fun idea. It touches on so many of the things that I look for in a comedy in that, you know, I don't want the comedy to be super broad and super jokey and super winky. I want it to be smart and to be grounded and to be dry. If you look at the work that I have done on Documentary mm-hmm. Now and on Russian Dogs, all that kind of style. And that's kind of what he was going for. And he had such a smart concept to satirize the true crime industry. Craig is an Australian. He has this really amusing perspective on American culture as an Australian. I mean, he's been in America. He's a, he's a, he's a very seasoned, experienced writer in features and in television. And he had written on, he was one of the executives on The Boys mm-hmm. and on Preacher. And yet he re- retained this Australian distance perspective on American culture and this amusement in America's obsession with murder and with true crime and his perspective that, you know, of course, crime stories are popular throughout the world, but America is just obsessed with like deifying these criminals and like turning them into celebrities and then finding ways to, you know, commodify and and merchandise this true crime stories, you know, and the creation of podcasts and the creation of this culture surrounding it. And he had gone to this event called Crime Con, yep. which was this crazy, you know, comic con type event. It was in Las Vegas. We actually satirize it in the show. But he said it was just incredible. It was just booths and booths of like merchandising surrounding the true crime industry. And you could buy products that were sort of, you know, homages to serial killers. And, and he just thought it was crazy. And so this idea was birthed to create this show that was using that lens to talk about true mm-hmm. crime. And for me, you know, the first conversation was, sure, this sounds really smart and fun. I like it. What is the tone of this thing? Because he wrote a comedy, but it had a lot of real dark, bloody, very stabby <laughs> scenes in it. And uh, we talked a lot about the tone and like he and I sort of found common ground in a lot of his influences, which were my influences. It was a lot of Hitchcock in the script, but we both recognized that, well, Hitchcock 
everybody loves Hitchcock, but you know, if you do hard Hitchcock, it feels kind of dated and and kind of tropey. And so we looked at the our other filmmaking heroes who had all also been inspired by Hitchcock. If you look at, you know, Brian De Palma or Sam Raimi or the Coen brothers or even Quentin Tarantino, like guys that had all clearly been influenced by Hitchcock and yet found their own language to do that kind of a psycho thriller. Yeah. And so we were looking at the tone and the language of a lot of those great films and just landing on this place where you could tell a story that was at times a screwball comedy and a relationship kind of dramedy between this married couple, Kaylee Cuoco and Chris Messina's characters. And then at times a real like Sam Raimi, Brian De Palma, bloody murder Mm -hmm. fest when the serial killer is, you know, doing his thing. It was a really fun tone and to try to navigate, you know, um, it's exactly the kind of challenge that I really like. And I suppose like I, I can see, you know, having come off of the background that I have that like, oh, right. Cool. It's like a genre bending challenge. The genre bending is not unlike the loops that we had to, or the, you know, the, the moves we had to make in Russian doll to try to tell, you know, unpack the Holocaust, but make it fun, you know, or, uh, you know, find ways to tell a gripping documentary, but in a really silly mm-hmm. way. I, I, I want to drill in specifically to these, I think you call them stabby scenes, and, which I, <laughs> I love. I, I had a, I'm, I'm coming to filmmaking from a different perspective. I had a career before, our listeners know. And so a lot of the time I'm discovering these like classic filmmakers, the things that people have who, who knew they wanted to be in filmmaking have watched for years. And I recently watched Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill. And watching it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what the film school students watched and then replicated. And I see a lot of emerging filmmakers sort of take and do their own version of it. But if anything, I feel like they're sticking very closely to the original source material. And I didn't feel that in the stabby scenes, like for example, the cold open. I felt like there's this very modern, very organic to the story approach that I see the influences. I feel the influences like from a tone perspective that is coming across. But, you know, it's also not stepping into a a place that feels like icky or exploitative. Like it feels like you guys really thread the needle with those particular, with these scenes in general. So can you talk specifically about the, the opening scene of the show, for example? Sure. Yes. The opening scene, which is a very stabby scene. That's a scene that was very influenced by, I mean, to me, I look at it and I see, I think it feels, you know, visually, I know where we were pulling those ideas from. It was the sort of eye of God objective camera of Hitchcock that Brian De Palma was so obsessed with. I mean, Brian De Palma was obsessed with Hitchcock. And if you look at what we're doing as not trying to ape Brian De Palma or even ape Hitchcock, but to, you know, as Jim Jarmusch would say, like to, you're not trying to do them. You're trying to do what they were trying to Mm -hmm. do. Everybody's influenced by the same things and everybody's just trying to create this, you know, trying to get the audience to feel a certain way. Hitchcock was doing it to get the audience to feel a certain way. And that's why De Palma was doing it. And that's why you know, the Coen brothers do it, or that's why Quentin Tarantino does it, or, you know, 
Bong Joon-ho or any of the names of the types of filmmakers that we were talking about in that particular scene. I think, you know, I was, it's funny because like Dress to Kill was both a big influence on this show. It was funnily, it was a big influence on Russian Doll as well. The New and, York story of it all. Yeah. And like, and the, all the, the, the subway mm-hmm. chase in particular, like, oh yeah, how do you do car to car stuff like that? But uh, I think a lot of it is, and again, speaking to the experience that I had at SNL, just like doing it over and over and over, I always feel like as a, as a younger filmmaker, in particular, I, I think I got this experience as a cinematographer that there's just, if you, if you grow up as a cinephile and as a film nerd, there's just certain types of shots that you just are desperate to mm-hmm. do. I remember thinking, I literally, I want to do a crane shot. I want to do a steady cam one I want to do all those. I want to do the crazy Michael Bay circle shot. I just want to do those cool shots. I want to feel like I authored them too. And I think you kind of just got to get them out of your mm-hmm. system. You know, once you do them, you're like, all right, I did it. Yeah. Okay. And you realize pretty quickly that like, oh, I see. It's not really about the shot. It's about the story. And if the shot is not really serving the story or if the shot is like overwhelming the story, it kind of ruins it. And so as much as we were influenced by Brian De Palma and like what I, what I think of Brian De Palma, I don't, I don't think of like, like I should say, when I think of Brian De Palma, I think of a sort of pulpy, almost fun, slightly B-movie version of Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that he's in on the joke. He knows that it's, it's, it's a fun, winky version of it. Sam Raimi is the same kind of thing, you know? The Coen brothers doing, we looked at Burn After Reading was the Coen brothers movie that we looked at a lot. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Not movie, but like stylistically, it's like the Coen brothers doing mm-hmm. Hitchcock. And we were just sort of talking about like, well, what is that? And so a lot of it was, it influenced the choice of lenses. We were shooting with wider lenses and we were utilizing, I mean, specifically like that kind of co- the contrast of a subjective camera, which was a very Hitchcock mm-hmm. thing. Then Hitchcock would then subvert that with a very objective sort of like high angle top shot to kind of show you the mechanics of what was happening. And so within that opening murder sequence, you get a lot of subjective camera. You get a lot of like, what is Chloe seeing? This is her looking. This is her seeing. This is her looking. This is her seeing. So it, you felt very, hopefully you would feel almost claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. Room. And then this is, and then, and then you, you're using that kind of classic horror film device of then not showing, once you realize that there's a killer in the room, don't show me the whole room anymore. Just stay on her and uh, exclude the rest of the room so that the killer can sneak up on her. And then we're as surprised as she is. And then once the killer starts stabbing her, then show me the mechanics of what exactly is happening here. So that's, it's using a lot of the technique that you can see on display in a De Palma scene like that or in a Sam Raimi sequence. But I think once you kind of absorb all of those influences, then you do kind of like throw it away. And earlier in my career, I did a lot of like, do a still frame grab and then recreate that shot. And that was kind of my job at SNL for so long. It was like, recreate that frame. Like that's the job today is recreate that shot. And now that I'm a little later in my career, I, I, I throw that part mm-hmm. away and I kind of absorb the influences and then throw it away and then come up with our own shots. It sounds obvious, but it is easy when you're trying to go for 
a filmmaking style or you realize that, oh, this filmmaker had captured the perfect tone for this. I should just do what they did. And I think that's a real easy thing to fall into as a young filmmaker. And I should say, like, I don't think that's even a bad idea. I think that as a younger filmmaker, I think it's a good exercise to just, hey, there's a filmmaker that you, you, you like the way that whatever, the Coen brothers covered that scene, try it, see if it works yeah. for you. It, understand what parts of that work and what parts of that don't work. You know, the Coen brothers, by the way, I mean, you look at their films and there's something, there's something so simple about it, you know, in the way that, you know, in particular, the Roger Deakins ones, like the way that they shoot their scenes is so simple. And yet you see it um, aped by a thousand other filmmakers. Everybody's trying to do that Coen brothers, dark comedy thing. It is so hard to get it right. right. I don't, I don't think I've ever gotten it right. I've certainly tried a number of times that you recognize that, oh, it's not just the lens they were using, or it's not just the camera move they were doing. You know, I mean, Wes Anderson is, has nothing to do with this show, but he's another good example that people can, I guess, imagine, like, you know what a Wes Anderson movie mm-hmm. looks like, you know how to try to fake it. We certainly tried to fake it at SNL. <laughs> I love, the, um, I love the Wes Anderson, the midnight coterie of sinister intruders sketch. Exactly, yeah. And nailed it. Um, nailed it. It's funny because you, you know, I suppose in the format of a trailer, it's easier to kind of fake mm-hmm. it. But when you're within a scene and you're just faking it, it falls apart pretty quickly right. if you don't understand what you're doing or if it's not really rooted in the core of the story. Which I think is was my reaction seeing Dressed to Kill, the Brian De Palma film for the first time, I had seen so many going through the motions of of shooting yeah. this way, but without mm, synthesizing what's best for the story. I love this this way that you're talking also about being influenced by and mimicking and in in mirroring or mirroring isn't the right word, but like using this influence because the story of based on a true story are these folks actually creating a true crime podcast as well. So there's this also them going through the motions of what should this be and figuring out how to tell their story. It's it 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 kind of just tickles me for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> it's very satisfying. Now I think that it you have such a unique background having been able to get your repetitions in at SNL. And to become a director producer in episodic is sort of this there is no school or pipeline or ladder to get there so for somebody who's starting out and interested in pursuing a career like yours maybe they can't get into SNL but like what would you recommend they do do you recommend the assistant route do you recommend making sketch comedy what what would you say is a way to actively be pursuing a career like yours well, the director-producer role is an interesting, relatively new thing for me. I am the director or often co-director and executive producer of Documentary Now, so I've directed all those episodes. And I just think sort of, that's sort of like just a show that I make with my mm-hmm. friends. Russian Doll was the first time I was hired to be the quote-unquote like directing producer. And to me, that just felt like another very, very familiar role in that I was just there the whole time. You know, I'm there the whole time making documentary now. I have made other movies 
where I'm just there the whole time. I'm there in the writing room or I'm there when the script is being created. I'm there raising the money and making the thing and in post and then seeing it into the release. And for me, that is the most satisfying way to be a part of a project. Just do it. Just do the whole thing. And one of the things that I actually was, one of the reasons why I, I started my career as a cinematographer and then I kind of, I, I became a producer and then a director. And now my job is really director producer-ish and not, no longer a cinematographer. And I just personally found that for me, the role of a cinematographer was not enough. It wasn't enough involvement. It was, you have one of the most important jobs on the show in while you're produ- while the show is in production. But then when your job is finished, the show then spends another year mm-hmm. <laughs> finishing being made and you're not a part of that. And I always was really bummed out about that when then I would go to the premiere as a cinematographer and I would sort of find the director or, and I would find the producers and I would say, hey, we did it, we did it. And there was always this moment of like, oh, you right, there. yeah, yeah. We did. <laughs> but then there's also the editor who is just as important and the composers. And I just felt like, ah, I feel like I want to be more a part mm-hmm. of this. You know, and I, a lot of it is like, I wanted more ownership and more responsibility. And my friends who are, my cinematographer friends who are, so incredible at what they do. Like I can feel that from them, like they're like, no, I'd rather just work because the part of it where you're in, you're, you're, you're on board for the whole time. You're on, you're on that show for mm-hmm. years. In the case of based on a true story, I was on board for, you know, I don't know, nine or 10 months. And in that time, the cinematographer was on for a couple of months. And so that person could go and work on a bunch of shows and I'm still stuck on this show. But I digress. The, the role of director producer, which was really on, in the case of Based on the True Story, it was my job was to like, come on board, direct the pilot. In this case, I also directed the finale, but really it was to like, then be on set and like, make sure that Craig Rosenberg's vision mm-hmm. for the show was being defended. And when you bring in epi- other episodic directors, you know, that they were not accidentally making a different show. Right. And in in a case like this, and in a case of like a lot of television, either the writing is already finished and the writers are not on set, or the in, in our case, Craig was writing all of the episodes, and so he was really busy writing, and I was there on set to make sure that his show was being made. And in most cases, the episodic directors they come in, they get four days of prep, they get their you know x amount of shooting days. And I've done that job too. All they want is to get it right. right. All they don't, I don't think as an upside director, you come in thinking, I'm gonna put my stamp on this thing, I'm gonna do it my way. I you just want to know, help me. What is your show? Make sure I don't screw this up. I want you guys to like yeah. me. And so my job was to sit there behind the monitor with the director of the episode and assure them that's great. That's I love this shot. If I did love the shot, oh, that's the, what they're doing right now is great. And if it strayed from the tone of the show. I was just there to be like the guardrails mm-hmm. of like, I don't think that's quite what the show is. Or I think this is a joke. I think this should be more funny. Or I think we may be getting a little too dramatic here. Or, you know, or literally sometimes I don't think that shot is in the visual language of the show. I think, and like, for example, if you, if I noticed that, hey, we're rushing to get make the day and 
the coverage is starting to just feel a little ordinary. It's starting to feel like a TV show to be somebody to go, hey, hold on, let's let's slow down and let's just make sure that we're still making our unique visual yeah. show, that we're not just making a TV show right now. And I really like that job. I, I had a great time doing it. I think there's a lot of directors who would not want to do that job because it's a lot of not directing. It's a lot of supervising. Yeah. And it's also a lot of time to spend not directing the next thing. And so if you're looking for a job as a directing producer, a lot of it is, you know, it's producing. Mm-hmm. It's not just directing. You're not directing every episode of the show, you know? And so a lot of my producing background really helped, you know, it's, it's a lot of like people management. Yeah. It's a lot of like, you know, helping the director understand what the show is and then hustling over to the other department heads and making sure that the costume designer got that note or things are changing. Does the production designer understand that? And really making sure that everything that the creator of the show intended is happening. And that's sort of, I took that, that same perspective on Russian doll. I mean, Natasha Leone had a vision, a very strong Mm -hmm. vision for that show. That's her vision. It's her show. And my job I took was to like, make sure her vision happened. And if I saw that something was falling through the cracks, it was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not what Natasha would want or wanted or intended. Let's get this right. And just being another person to like help the creator of the show create their show. It's a lot of it is like being a co-pilot or being a lieutenant, you know, or just being a good partner, a good, you know, who can help the runners and creators of shows. It's such a hard task. Oh my God, it's so much work. And I, I, you know, that's kind of what my role is on documentary now. It's so crazy. It's so hard to do all of those jobs and all of that responsibility and all of those decisions. And so having, I just know from experience that, God, I wish there was somebody here who could just help me, like, make sure I'm not forgetting anything. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of the role that I take direct, a director-producer role to be. So be the co-pilot that I would love to have when I'm in that creator slash showrunner position. I love this idea and and we haven't talked about this too much on the podcast of being the co-pilot, being the person who is helping facilitate, bring someone else's vision to life. When you are functioning in that role on set, like what is your ethos or mindset? Like, are you, for example, we had Sam Hargrave on the director of Extraction and Extraction 2 coming in. And he said, as director, I see myself as a switchboard operator plugging in to different needs of production at every time. But whenever I'm there, I'm zeroed in on that one person that I'm speaking with. Like, how do you approach production and being that through line for the story and that co-pilot for the creator? Like, how do you put your hat on at the beginning of the day and say, okay, this is how I'm going to go in and handle this whole, you know, very, very, like even talking about it, my brain is like, this is a lot to handle. So what's your, what's your secret? That's a really, that's a good way of, of putting it as a, a switchboard operator. I, I think you just have to be comfortable, you know, spinning a lot of plates at the mm-hmm. same time. Some people hate that. I have learned about myself that I really like that. I really like doing things that are very hard to do. And not, not that I, not that it's, I'm seeking out complications or not, and I'm not seeking out problems, but it's just inherent in, in, in production. 
that's so hard to navigate, you know, a hundred people all with their own incredibly smart. I mean, you hire all of your crew because of their own vision and their own perspective and their own experience. And your job as a director, and certainly, you know, above you is the showrunner and the creator of the show and their vision. Hopefully your director, your vision for the show is a, is a, is aligned with their vision. Craig and I spent a lot of time together coming up with the idea for what the show should look like and feel like. And, and then a lot of my job was to like execute mm-hmm. that and help Craig make decisions and be there to say, I don't know if that's the right, I don't know if that really is in line with what we talked about or pivot if it's like, oh, that's what his new idea is. Okay, let's, but yeah, you have to enjoy that role. Mm-hmm. The, the support operator, Sam Hargraves would say, it's, it's totally, it's very true. Directing is not what I think a lot of people think it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's not as, you're not spending as much time like with the actors as you think, particularly in television. I Look, I had an amazing experience on this show. Our actors were so lovely. I developed a real fondness for Chris Messina. That dude is so, so good. funny. Also, we just had loved- him... We had the director of The Boogeyman on. So Chris Messina is having a moment that we are here for. He is such a sweetheart. Kaylee Cuoco is so sweet and she's so funny and she's so easy to work with. We, we were blessed with a cast who was really easy to work with. So they, they made my job, that part of my job, much easier. But, you know, being on set and like giving the actor a note is like the... <laughs> It's like such a tiny, tiny fraction of what you do as a director, what you do as a directing producer. And so much more of it is like, you're the project manager, Mm -hmm. you know, you're managing all these different departments. You're trying to get the most out of all of your creative partners. You know, you're trying to empower your cinematographer to, you know, come up with a better shot. You know, you're trying to empower your production designer to come up with a, you know, can can you we need we need this set built and we need it built by tomorrow mm-hmm. but but we don't want you to just throw a bunch of flats together like come up with something that really helps tell the story so it's that tricky like getting the most out of everybody while marshalling them all in the same direction mm-hmm. you know that's really where you spend and then you know you're dealing with the producers and the production, the, the line producer and like, what's this all going to cost? And okay, this is going to take too much time. And, you know, I, I can't shoot all of this shots in this amount of time. Can we go back to the creator and ask him to, can I, can you make this half a page, a quarter of a page, you know, can we lose this line or can we, this one thing you have in the script is going to take me an extra four hours to shoot. Is that important? Mm-hmm. And so it's a lot of things to do at the same time. I think some people get into directing thinking that it's going to be a very theatrical experience where you're just dealing with actors. And I suppose for some really high profile directors, that's all it is now. But I think for most directors, it's a real managerial job and you have to enjoy mm-hmm. that and you have to want that role because it's really, really hard. Yeah. To- <laughs> Oh, well, that's such great advice. And thank you for taking us through this process and getting into the weeds and showing us, you know, the good and the and the difficult. And I think that's such a, will be so valuable for our listeners. So thank you. Thank you for joining yes. us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you so much, Alex, for taking the time to speak with us and for giving us a peek behind the curtain from some of the most popular shows on television. I genuinely believe Alex's career is a case study in the importance of trying new things. Of course, he got his reps in shooting for SNL for over a decade, but he continued to diversify, whether it was within a show. For example, Documentary Now was essentially a different film for each episode, or by embracing a spectrum of shows and movies and films and commercials across various tones and genre. At the end of the day, he can flex into any of these spaces because he knows what tells a good story for the screen. Thank you. To our listeners for joining, let us know what you think of this episode. Did you learn anything? You can email us, podcast at nofilmschool.com. You can also get more No Film School at nofilmschool.com and across our socials at nofilmschool. Thank you so much for listening and tune in next week.